This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LEFT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And harrys.com, where you can get high-quality shaving products for about half the price of name-brand razors. Plus, get $5 off your order when you use the offer code best at checkout. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from AJ+, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, The Young Turks, CNN, Democracy Now!, Learn Liberty, and The Migrants' Rights Network. I remember my eyes were like almost about to cry. There is a hint of embarrassment, to be quite honest. I realized that my silence was not protecting me. huge concern never tell anybody anything my parents always told me never to tell anybody that I was undocumented so I was always afraid to to tell anybody up until that moment the first person I told that I was undocumented was my high school vice principal I told him because I had just found out that my dad's um, court hearing for his residency had been denied. I sort of broke down and I told him. The very first person that I disclosed my status to was actually a high school friend. High school was a big challenge for me because um, while everybody was getting their driver's license or getting jobs, um, I was like, oh, I can't get that. I wondered if this was going to uh, question our, our our friendship actually the first person that i told was my ninth grade computer ed teacher miss mitchell she offered me a summer job um and the first thing that she asked me was for my parents permission and a social security number which i didn't have she looked mad um, and I was like, the first time that crossed my mind was like, oh my God, she's totally going to tell me. But she was like, I can't believe that, you know, somebody who has so much potential, you know, is, it's being, doesn't, it's not given an opportunity to get papers. I began to question like, what am I doing in high school? You know, should I even continue high school? Should I graduate? I should just drop out. You know, what's the point? I was really afraid, <laughs> just because, uh, afraid of being judged, mainly. And I knew about secrets, because aside from being undocumented, I'm also queer. I just needed somebody to know. I needed somebody, even if that person couldn't help me, um, I just needed somebody else to know who I really was and the identity that I was carrying with me. I don't ever remember feeling ashamed about being undocumented. My father was deported when I was in 10th grade. And that's when I came, came to understand what it meant to be undocumented. It was always something that was, that was on my mind. It was always on my, on my horizon. Um, and just rapping about it, making jokes about it, made it all the more bearable. Coming out as undocumented and queer <laughs> um, means 
owning your narrative. That I exist, that I'm a, a person, that I'm here, that my existence is more than a nine-digit number. Sticking it to the man. Loving yourself. Being tired of seeing the injustice that goes on in our community. Being unafraid. It's like the boogeyman that's going to get you. You, you come face to face with it and it's gone. It means love for myself, for my identity, for my community. When you are in the shadows or in the closet, you're, you're alone. But once you express yourself and you um, become active in the community, there's this liberation and empowerment. Coming out as undocumented is really liberating. You never know who will be your biggest supporter and also it forces people to see us and to recognize that we're here. And by the way, we should follow up about Donald Trump's claims that it's these uh, uh, bad immigrants who are committing all of these crimes. He said, Donald Trump, at his campaign announcement, when Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. This had huge repercussions. Univision and NBC severed ties with him. Macy said it's dropping his line of clothing. Mattress maker Serta is not going to have Trump home products available anymore. But then we actually got an analysis of whether it's true that immigrants are bringing crime. Donald Trump had a session with the Chicago Tribune newspaper, and he brought them all sorts of newspaper articles that he thought would confirm his point about dangerous criminal immigrants. But it turns out that most of these are either completely out of context or just flat out untrue. The Huffington Post story that Donald Trump cited as evidence that immigrants are committing all this crime in the U.S. actually talked about how undocumented immigrants are often raped before crossing the border into the United States by individuals who are not in the United States. They get raped before they get here by bandits or human traffickers or government officials, etc. And then Donald Trump had other articles also, but they were just anecdotal. Out of any group of people, right, Episcopalians or people from West Virginia or people who like tennis, you're going to be able to find some criminals. That doesn't mean that it is representative of the population as a whole. Let's look, for example, at the city of El Paso, Texas, which in 2011 had the lowest crime rate ranking in any city with at least half a million residents. It is right across the river from Mexico, uh, specifically Ciudad Juarez, which in Mexico in 2011 had the second highest murder rate of any city on earth. Lewis, just a river separating the two cities, and it doesn't seem like all this crime is bleeding over to El Paso. Yeah, you know, stories about illegals committing crime we see this a lot. It's just a lot of irresponsible reporting. You yeah. point to one incident of something and the way in which you report on it makes it seem like it's an epidemic. Um, 
and it's it's a problem. And even more absurd is what Donald Trump tried to say about Chicago. Sociologist from Harvard, Robert Sampson, has has researched Chicago a lot and actually found a lower rate of violence among Mexican Americans compared to both whites and blacks. And he says actually that increases in immigration and language diversity tend to coincide with reductions in homicide rates. And this is no coincidence, Lewis. If you have immigrants coming to the U.S., if they know that they're not authorized to be working, if they're undocumented, they're going to want to stay under the radar, not committing crimes. And number two, it stands to reason logically that anyone who goes through the expense and the risk, both in terms legally and in terms of violence, because of the violence that can happen in Mexico before you cross the border, if you're going to go through all of that to come to the U.S., are you going to jeopardize the entire thing with the possibility of deportation, prison, or both by committing crimes? It just doesn't make sense. No, I wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. But Donald Trump probably thinks that these people aren't the smartest uh, or he's not the smartest and doesn't realize this. Now, if you want to talk about the smugglers, um, the drug smugglers, those, uh, you know, the coyotes. OK, clearly these people are up to no good and they might be committing some crimes. But um, yes. I would try to stay under the radar. So Scott Walker, and this is fascinating because the Koch brothers ostensibly, right, they're pro-immigration. But let, let's be honest. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, now, and, and I have said for some time that when the Koch brothers said they were going to dump $900 million into this race, a lot of it was going to end up in Scott Walker's pockets. Scott Walker has been carrying their water for quite some time. He is... Um, and here's the thing. I mean, you're the Koch brothers, right? Will you support Jeb Bush if he becomes the, the nominee? Probably in some way, but you'll probably spend your, spread your money out because you don't know that he's going to win. You want to own a guy. You want to own a guy. Jeb Bush is not going to be owned by the Koch brothers. Jeb Bush is going to have a lot of other owners. Scott Walker, he's going to be owned by the Koch brothers. You have to understand the sort of the, the agenda of these pros. And, and last night when I was on Hayes, I was saying that Chris Christie, when he talked about Social Security, was playing to one guy, Pete Peterson. And uh, Jeff Smith... Not a uh, friend of show, Jeff Smith, but Jeff Smith, um, state senator uh, from Missouri, who I think went to prison because of uh, campaign finance issues, who follows this stuff. I am mean, said, well, what about Ken Langone? Chris Christie already has his billionaire, Ken Langone. I don't think Ken Langone is going to support Chris Christie because Ken Langone wants some results. He liked, uh, you know, he pays uh, Cuomo to get charter schools in and whatnot. 
Chris Christie is valuable for one reason only, and that is to carry a message. Pete Peterson says, you're going to carry the Social Security message, and you're going to lose, and I don't care, because I spend tens of millions of dollars a year anyways trying to push this message, so instead I'll have, I'll pay you to do it. You're just, it's just a, I'm just looking at an advertising budget I have. You're going to be the advertising thing. And the Koch brothers, they're going to have their advertising guy who actually may win. At least the nomination, so he's going to be able to do, talk about this stuff for the next six months. So the Koch brothers, they don't care, they don't care about the, the immigration. That's just low on their list of stuff. Because you know Scott Walker did not make this decision to not only slam undocumented immigrants, but to criticize the notion of immigration, period. In terms of legal immigration, he said to Glenn Beck, who's had it with the Republican Party. I don't know if you remember that, that but that was two weeks ago. In terms of legal immigration, how do we, how we need to approach that going forward is saying the next president and the next Congress need to make decisions about legal immigration system that's based on first and foremost on protecting American workers and American wages. Because the more I've talked to folks, I've talked to Senator Sessions and other out there, but it's fundamentally lost issue by many in the elected positions today is what is this doing for American workers looking for jobs? What is this doing to wages? And we have to, uh, have to be at the forefront of our discussion going forward. Well, first of all, I think you'll find that it's doing very little in terms of wages and in terms of jobs. Immigration, even in general. Particularly relative to something like unionization, which has a proven track record of raising wages in an industry, never mind just for the people who have been unionized, but in that industry by upwards around 10 to 12 percent. So if you really care about American workers and American wages, your whole career is not built upon destroying unions. This is just about nativism. This is just about nativism. He's going Pat Buchanan. Because he's got to reach out. He's got to make up for the fact that he's being supported by the Koch brothers. And he's got to distance himself from there. And he, he basically, I'm sure, got the green light. Go ahead. He's also somewhat like Sarah Palin. I, I think, you know, the more I see him, I mean, he's obviously a lot more effective than her. And not just sort of complete disaster that she is, but he's a real believer. Oh and yeah, a, uh, there's no doubt. So and I don't think there's any. There's not even the sense of well, I'll use this as an opening to cynically exploit. He's all in this total fan. I mean, maybe so, but I think he's in a fantasy land with regard to all of this stuff. I whether think there's it's part market of that. fundamentalism. I think there's part of whether that. it's nativism. I think it's very genuine. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go play this audience of Rubes right now. I know. I, I think, think he there's is. Something to He's that. a representative of the I Rubes himself. All right. So um, with that said, that's uh, Scott Walker on his, uh, as Breitbart.com calls it, 
his pro-American worker stance on immigration. There may come a day when all kids will be taught how to code in school and everyone will be able to build their own websites from scratch. But until that day comes, there's Squarespace, the platform that makes it fast and easy to build a beautiful website, no coding required. Not only will it be simple to build your site using great templates and drag and drop tools, but it's a breeze to maintain because you'll always know that you have state-of-the-art technology powering your site, ensuring security and stability. Not to mention their 24-hour support, just in case you need a hand. The fact is, Squarespace has too many cool features to mention, but the good news is that you can try them all out for free for 14 days, no credit card required. After that, it's only an amazingly low $8 a month, and to really put the icing on the cake, you can take an additional 10% off when you sign up using the offer code LEFT at checkout. If you sign up for a year, you get 10% off the full year, as well as a free domain. So try them out today and use the offer code LEFT when you sign up to save yourself some cash and show your support for this show. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Republican Party obviously in a lot of trouble with Latino voters. In fact, President Barack Obama was able to secure his victory uh, thanks to winning the Hispanic vote, as Ross Story explains, by more than a 36-point margin in 2008 and a 44-point margin in 2012. So those are gigantic leads for the Democratic candidate in those elections. Uh, obviously, the Republicans got to do better here. And in fact, uh, right after the 2012 election, that's why Marco Rubio and some of the other Republicans uh, wanted to do immigration reform to remove that topic from the agenda so they c would stop the bleeding, basically. Not necessarily because they cared so much about making sure that they uh, solved the immigration issue, but they didn't want it to hurt the Republican Party anymore. You know who stopped them? The Republican Party. Uh, the Republicans in the House said, oh, no way, we're not doing immigration f reform, it's amnesty, all we're going to do is build a giant, giant wall. Uh, so uh, they decided, okay, we're going to keep going in that same direction. That might uh, pose a different problem for them. And then, of course, Trump came along and said the Mexicans coming across the border are criminals and rapists. Uh, but that's okay, guys. It's okay. Because uh, the other Republican candidates get to make up for it. Because now uh, National Council of La Raza is having a, a meeting. It's actually, if you don't know, it's the largest Latino advocacy group in the country. So almost all the Democrats are going. Hillary Clinton's going to go. Martin O'Malley's going to go. Bernie Sanders is going to go. So now there is 16 Republican candidates right now. So uh, let's figure out how many of those guys are going to go. All right, there was 16, no, 15, oh, no, four, wait a minute, 14, no, 13 are going to go, 12 are going to go? No, it can't be lower, 11 are going to go, 10 are going to go, only 9 of the 6, 8 are going to go, 7 are going to go? No, come on, 6, wait, stop, stop, 5 are going to go, right? 4, no, 3, 2, 1, 6, oh, my God. Turns out the answer is nada. None of them are going. Okay. Now, you know, they, you come in with a thousand excuses. Nobody's even made this excuse yet, but I'll make it for them. Oh, no. I mean, La Raza, we have some political disagreements with some of their policy positions, but we would go to other Latino events. Is that right? Uh, well, there was another event last month, uh, the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials. So you could have gotten to that. How many people went to that? Out of the 16 candidates, let me show you uh, all of the candidates who went. That's it. Well, got to give uh, credit to the good doctor. Ben Carson was the only one who showed up at that event. 
So two gigantic Latino events uh, that other Democrats, uh, other politicians have got. Democrats went to it. Hillary Clinton went. O'Malley, Sanders, again, they all went. Republicans, here was their response, collective response. So if you say terrible things about Latinos, uh, you have terrible policy positions, and on top of that, you don't even want to speak to any Latinos, well, where does that leave you? Gee, I wonder how they would be if they were in office. Uh, I wonder if they're going to get any Latino votes. I wonder why they're losing the Latino vote. I can't quite figure it out. Uh, but they're political geniuses over there on the Republican side. Uh, my guess is that their answer is going to be, nah, it's okay. Uh, at the end of the, the election, we'll buy millions of dollars in misleading ads, uh, and in Spanish, we'll tell them to vote for us, and everything will be fine. Guaranteed that's what they do. Whether that works is a different question. about that day what happened you come home and you find the kitchen empty yeah um, it's weird because you know as I said in my letter I would always have like this feeling um, I was always scared that my parents were gonna be gone that I was gonna come home one you day you were aware of their uncertain absolutely, absolutely. I mean they would remind me every day I mean my dad had like this whole system you know here's where I hide this in case anything happens and um, you know don't be scared and, and know that you're gonna be okay and and that we love you very much and that we wish that this situation was different for us but this is our reality um, so yeah that that day I I had this feeling I remember I called my parents a million times I was coming home from school and I was really excited because um, around that time I went to a performance arts high school so around that time we were sp uh, planning spring fest which was like you know everyone was getting their parts and their singing roles and and um, I was really excited because this is my first year and um, I really was excited to tell them about it, and I got home, and their cars were there, and um, and dinner was started, and the lights were on, but I couldn't find them, so it was really hard. It was really hard. And then the neighbors came in, and and that's how you found out that they were gone. The neighbors told you mm -hmm. they were just like, "I'm so sorry, but your parents were taken away." And what I did just... that feel like? That seems to be every child's worst nightmare: that your family is taken from you. Yeah. I just, I broke down, you know, I remember I like, I hid under the bed because I was afraid that somebody was going to come for me. I don't know who that someone was, but um, I, I was just so scared, I, you know, it's like, what do you, what do you do? And then I'm so scared for them. It's like what they're going through, you know, my parents are going to jail and, and for what? You know, I didn't consider them criminals. How long did it take you for you to understand where they were? Because they were gone. The neighbors came over and told you that they that immigration had come and taken them away. Yeah. When? How much of a timeline? What was the timeline of when you then found out where they were? Um, well, a few hours later of just waiting there, and the neighbors were at home with me. Um, I called my friends and um, their parents. I was very close to them, and they knew my parents' situation as well. Um, and I called them, they came over immediately, and they were just sitting there waiting for calls. And then finally I got a call 
um, from my dad, and and he said that he was he was being detained, and um, and so and then my mother called. They were separate. They were separated. I think no matter what side of this whole debate you're on, I think it's really troubling to know that you talk about this quite openly in your letter that no government official, no government agency reached out to make sure that you were okay. No. You basically relied on the kindness of strangers yeah. to get you through high school, to go on to college, mm -hmm. and fast forward. Yeah. Do you see your parents today? You're you're a few years older now. Yeah. It's been a few years it's since been you graduated. A few years since where, what's the status of, of your parents and, and your sibling? You have a brother. Yeah, I have a brother, Eddie. Um, they are in Colombia right now. I talk to them not every day, but we talk. Do you go there? I go there once a year. Um, How is that? It's tough. You know, it's like it's we've been separated for so long. I feel like sometimes we don't know each other. It's difficult because I've grown up without them, and there's things about them that are new that that I don't recognize and it just it hurts but I love them so much and I just I just hate that they have gone through this and I know I've been by myself but I feel like they have lived a very lonely existence sorry themselves so it is so what people don't realize that it is so difficult for some people to get um, documented and to get to get their papers and to become legal and my parents tried forever and there are this system didn't offer um, relief for them and what I'm asking for is to cr create or find a solution for families let's go down to the river let's go to the lake let's burn a fire turn now to Texas, where several cases of immigrant abuse have surfaced, both at the beginning of life and in death. The Texas Observer reports this week the state has been denying birth certificates to children born to undocumented parents. Despite the 14th Amendment's guarantee of citizenship to everyone born in the United States, Texas officials have reportedly refused to provide birth certificates to children whose mothers lack U.S. visas. A group of mothers has filed a lawsuit against the practice. Meanwhile, about 250 children held in a detention center for immigrants and asylum seekers were given an adult dose of a hepatitis A vaccine earlier this month. Crystal Williams of the American Immigration Lawyers Association told HuffPost Live what happened. They were given a double dose just there of the hepatitis A vaccine. Many of them very likely already had a hepatitis A vaccine just a couple of days before. Uh, the whole thing was inexplicable, but at the same time, very emblematic of what has been going on there. Incidentally, Several of the children did develop problems from the vaccinations, whether it was from the Hep A or not, we don't know, because there were four to six vaccinations given to each child. But there were a couple of children whose legs swelled so much that they were unable to walk. There was oh. a child with severe vomiting and diarrhea. And the solution to this, as it was to everything, or as to almost everything in the facility, is drink more water. That's the answer to everything. Drink more water.
And in the latest scandal, Texas has claimed there was no evidence of wrongdoing. When the bodies of immigrants uh, found miles inland from the Mexican border were placed in mass graves. The bodies were gathered from the desert surrounding a checkpoint uh, in Falfurrias, Texas, in Brooks County. An investigation was launched after the mass graves were exposed last November in a documentary by the Weather Channel in partnership with Telemundo and the Investigative Fund. In this clip, reporter John Carlos Frey speaks with Dr. Krista Latham of the University of Indianapolis at one of the sites where scores of migrant bodies were buried. They're unmarked. They're unidentifiable, and there's no information on these individuals. We anticipate at least several hundred may still be buried within the cemetery. As I investigate why so many lost migrants are dying in Brooks County, I hear about forensic teams from Baylor and Indianapolis universities who've spent the past two years exhuming migrant bodies. I just feel like everybody deserves to be mourned properly. They still have parents or siblings or spouses or children that are wondering what happened to them. So we're doing this for the families. For years, the previous sheriff would give the bodies to a funeral home that charged taxpayers over $1,000 per body, then buried them anonymously in a corner of this cemetery. Can you describe what kinds of bags the individuals were buried in? They're biohazard bags, trash bags. One Just was regular trash bags? Trash bags. What we found last year, there were coffins that were right next to each other on all four sides because there were so many people buried in that area. We took one of them down and we found skulls in between the burials. And so we just can't leave any dirt unturned or we might miss Wait. somebody. You have coffin, 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 and then in between coffins you have Skull. skulls. Sometimes. These are mass graves. These are mass graves. They're commingled. Everyone is different. So you shouldn't just dump a bag into a hole in the ground. You know, would you want your son buried that way? Or your mom? Or your sister? Or your brother? I mean, this isn't how you want someone you love to be buried. For more, we're joined by the reporter you just heard in this clip, his own investigation revealing new evidence that indicates rampant violations of the law with these mass graves. John Carlos Frey is the documentary filmmaker and investigative journalist at the Nation Institute. His latest report, Graves of Shame, follows up on his last year report, The Real Death Valley. John, welcome back to Democracy Now! Explain to us where these mass graves came from. Who is buried in them? The mass graves are in a small rural county in South Texas called Brooks County, a very poor county. The migrants mostly come from Central America and Mexico, and they find themselves crossing the U.S.-Mexico border trying to evade a checkpoint and walking about 40 miles in what amounts to 100 degree heat and 100 percent humidity. Many of the individuals die. They don't have identification on them. The, the process by which the county and officials in the area try to identify them is, is pretty meaningless. And these individuals are buried in a county cemetery, basically dumped into a hole in the ground. Many of them don't have markers or uh, proper burial techniques. And these graves in the last couple of years have been exhumed so that the individuals can be identified or at least the attempt to identify them. And John, who do you believe should be held accountable for this? 
Well, the county is responsible. Anybody who, who is found deceased in the county, uh, there is a procedure by which individuals who handle the remains have to try the best that they possibly can to try and identify the individuals. For example, uh, county coroners are supposed to take DNA evidence and submit that to our missing persons and unidentified database. Individuals are supposed to have any sort of identification uh, in the actual container where the individual is buried. The cemetery is supposed to have a plot plan. If you're looking for the remains of a particular individual, you're supposed to be able to find exactly where they've been buried. And, and it goes on down the list from law enforcement to county officials to private mortuary companies. Any individual who has contact with the remains are culpable here. And all of those people that I just named and the organizations I just named have been negligent. John Carlos Frey, you report hundreds of migrants have died in the sweltering Texas brush, some while waiting hours for Border Patrol to respond to their 911 calls. Your documentary features Sigfredo Palomo. He and his brother Jose Fernando Palomo came to the U.S. hoping to escape violence in El Salvador. But after they crossed the border, Fernando fell ill and the two were abandoned by their guide. In this clip, Sigfredo describes how he had called 911 repeatedly as his brother Fernando lay dying. And then he started to hallucinate. His body or his limbs were no longer functioning. He didn't recognize me, and that just killed me. I called into 911 last night so that you could report me to Border Patrol. And they haven't found you? No. And my little brother just died on me. I'm so sorry. One moment, please. And it's just you and your brother, right? Yeah, but he just died on me. What is your brother's name? Jose Fernando Hernandez Paloma. He was 22 years old. This is Sigfredo moments after he's rescued. It's been 11 hours since he first called 911, and over three hours since dispatch got accurate coordinates. The Border Patrol never shows. It's local police who come in order to retrieve his brother's body. They were the ones who literally told me your brother will go to a funeral home in Laredo, Texas, and you will be deported. Those were their exact words. That's an excerpt from The Real Death Valley by our guest, John Carlos Frey, the documentary filmmaker and investigative journalist. Tell us, continue to take us on this road and talk about DNA evidence, what the state authorities are doing, what you feel needs to be done. As the controversy today is all about Donald Trump calling Mexicans rapists, John Carlos. 
Yeah. Uh, the individuals that I have found, in, especially in this particular area, are not rapists. Most of the people coming to this region here are asylum seekers. They're fleeing horrible violence and economic depression in their own countries, mostly from Central America. And they're coming to the United States to present themselves uh, to seek asylum, which is perfectly legal in the United States. It's, it's the way that we manage asylum seekers. We ask them to come to the U.S.-Mexico border and to make a claim of asylum. And that's exactly what happened in this particular case. Some people find themselves lost in this vast ranch land area, and, and the elements are just inhospitable, and many individuals die. And even in death, the individuals, their remains are improperly uh, prepared and buried, uh, as you just mentioned, the case of, of DNA, all unidentified individuals in the state of Texas by law are supposed to uh, have a DNA biopsy. Even if we don't know who these individuals are, maybe sometime in the future they'll be able to be cross-referenced with, with family DNA samples. On down the list, uh, the way that the bodies were prepared, the way the bodies were buried, and now that they've been exhumed, we have found out that the bodies were improperly taken care of. The Texas Rangers, who are the preeminent and elite group in the state of Texas who, who do investigations, were tasked with investigating why there were mass graves in Brooks County. They found no criminal wrongdoing. That's exactly why I picked up the investigation myself. I found over a dozen violations of Texas and national law with respect to the way that the remains were buried. Uh, the culpability here is all the way from, from county supervisors all the way up to uh, government officials, even Rick Perry, who was actually the governor at the time, who actually is uh, pretty close friends with the private mortuary, I'm sorry, the private funeral company, who was responsible for burying the bodies. The largest funeral services company in the country, Service Corporation International, was actually responsible for burying the bodies. And we found individuals buried four inches below the surface in shallow graves. We found people who were buried without containers. We found individuals who were buried without any identification uh, information whatsoever. People buried in trash bags, in biohazard bags. We even uh, 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 uncovered an individual who was buried in a milk crate. So these are all violations of law that I just listed in the Texas Rangers themselves. Uh, excuse me, found no criminal wrongdoing whatsoever in this case. And John Carlos Frey, you spoke to some of the uh, uh, people crossing the border in that area. Could you explain what they told you about the conditions they were fleeing and the risks they were willing to take, despite how dangerous uh, it is uh, attempting to, come, uh, to cross into the United States uh, along that border uh, uh, in Texas? Yes, exactly. I mean, and, and to the point of, of Donald Trump, these are not people coming from Central America or Mexico to rape American women. Uh, it's, it's the most ridiculous statement that I've ever heard. These are individuals who are fleeing extraordinary violence. If, if you know anything about Central America, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras is suffering from great gang violence, uh, cartel violence. People are not safe. Children cannot play out in the streets past five o'clock. People lock themselves in their homes and their windows are barred. Uh, many individuals uh, hire even private security to protect themselves. Uh, people are extorted on a regular basis in their jobs and, and in, in their businesses. And so to, in order to make a living, in order to live safely, there's no recourse. People are threatened with their lives on a regular basis. And many of the individuals I have spoken to who have fled those conditions come to the United States uh, obviously seeking a better life. So for, for a presidential candidate such as Donald Trump, to denigrate, to denigrate the poor and the suffering and to use them as a, a political platform for his own well-being is, is tantamount to, to cowardice. 
these are individuals who have no recourse. They wouldn't leave their home countries, their cultures, their languages uh, just just to come to the United States to do harm. They're, they're really people who are suffering and in desperate need. As the debate regarding illegal immigration continues in the United States, there are more and more congregations, liberal congregations, that are trying to save people from being deported. In fact, dozens of congregations in as many as 12 states are offering refuge in their churches in order to make sure that these people don't get deported in what they consider an unlawful way. Now, what happens is if you are living in a church, Authorities are unable to deport you. There's this weird loophole. So these congregations are trying to help out. Well, there's a pastor who's actually enraged by this, Pastor Robert Jeffers. And here's what he has to say. Take a look. Look, a lot of these liberal churches that harbor illegal immigrants who are criminals say they're following the example of Jesus. The only problem is they're following the Jesus of their imagination rather than the Jesus of the Bible. Look, Jesus was not this wimpy little guy who walked around munching sunflower seeds and saying nice things to people. The real Jesus of the Bible said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That is, obey the government. <laughs> okay. I love so many parts of this, including now we have uh, Republicans, pastors on Fox News talking about how you must bow your head and obey the government. What happened? I it's thought you, amazing. I thought you guys were against the government. I thought, oh, no, we yes. want small government. Not only that, they're against taxes. And there is a portion of the Bible that he used in his argument that implies that these people did not, in Jesus' days, right, these people did not want to pay taxes to Rome, and so they asked Jesus, what should we do? And Jesus told them, well, you got to pay your taxes. At least that's the way he made the story seem. That's not the reality of it. We'll get to it in a second. So basically he's making a point. Well, Jesus said, pay your taxes. This is a conservative Republican who probably despises taxes. Yeah, <laughs> but all of a sudden you want to make that point, and it's convenient. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus, pro-government, pro-taxes. We like taxes. Okay, interesting. We didn't know that you were on that side. Amazing. Um, now, there was another religious individual who looked into this and was like, oh, no, 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 he got the story wrong. Okay, so let me give you uh, an example. So uh, Jeffers was referring to a Bible story in which Critics of Jesus asked him if he was right to pay taxes to the Roman government, which uh, controlled Israel at the time. Jesus asked for a coin and, pointing out that Caesar's face was imprinted on it, said, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Now, as the religious um, expert said in this context, uh, Jesus' statement was a critique of Rome's imperial system and its claim that Caesar was a deity. Uh, Jesus was essentially saying that government was not God. So now, Jeffress takes that and twists it. So he's like, well, you see that? Jesus loved the government. <laughs> and so he said, if the government, uh, you know, uh, cracks down on undocumented immigrants, well, then, you know, that's awesome. And Jesus would have been in favor, but he would have rounded them up. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. 
Who can possibly believe that? All right, I got great quotes for you in a second from the Bible itself. Uh, but let's talk a little further about the, that, that, that saying, right? Now, I'm not sure I agree with uh, the second religious scholar either. It just seems to be like, hey, don't mess around with Caesar. Okay, right. if he wants your taxes, pay your taxes, just pay him. Right? But just know he's not a deity. Okay? Yeah. That's all you need to know. <laughs> but this guy turns it around and says that he's implying that Jesus was pro Caesar and hence pro the Roman government. That's why you should listen to the government in terms of going after immigrants. That's the same Roman government that crucified him. And on Fox News, they turn it around and like, oh, no, Jesus loved that Roman government. <laughs> How could you make that claim? They crucified him, right? These guys are unbelievable. And then did you notice the thing that he threw in the middle there? Uh, you know, Jesus is not this wimpy, gr- gr- you know, granola hippie guy, you know? He's not eating the sunflowers. No, he's not eating the sunflowers. He's a badass. Okay, this time, you don't crucify me. I crucify you. Here comes yeah. Jesus' return. Jesus coming with an AK-47. There's actually some documentation that he ate beef jerky, not sunflower seeds. So he's a real American, right? Yeah, that, that's I, right. I wouldn't be surprised if they said something that ignorant on the show. You know what Jesus liked? NASCAR. Okay. All right. Now, finally, uh, let me read you uh, actual quotes from the Bible. Deuteronomy 15:11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you: you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor. In your land, okay? That's a very inconvenient Bible verse, Jenk. <laughs> uh, Don't bring up the inconvenient stuff. The, the needy in your land, open your arms to them. Don't close your fist to them, open your arms to them. That's what the churches are doing now, and he's trying to fight against the churches. One more, Luke 12, 33, 34. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your, your heart be also. Now, has Pastor Jeffers told his flock to sell all their worldly possessions and give it to the needy in their land? It doesn't appear so. If you're not convinced, I give you this final uh, piece of evidence. Let me show you the first undocumented immigrant. Moses. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, they put up a whole sea to keep him out, okay, and that didn't work either. He parted that shit. <laughs> That's right. And whether they liked it or not, he was coming. He did not have papers, uh, but I'm pretty sure the Bible was on his side. Could you imagine he gets to Israel after 40 years in the desert? They're like, papers? Yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding me, man? <laughs> By the way, I just want to add one thing to this. It's just interesting to see that... Certain groups of people in this country, those who like to preach about morality the most, use their same religious doctrine in order to divide us. They're the same people that use religious doctrine. They ignore the inconvenient parts that Jake just mentioned right now, but they use that Bible in order to justify their hatred for certain groups of people. It's disgusting, right? Like, by the way, and let's say, you know, we want to have an actual conversation about undocumented immigrants, illegal immigration, whatever it is. I don't care what your Bible has to say about it. You know what I care about? Common sense and policies that work, right? Your Bible can be the most clear, consistent thing on the planet, which, by the way, it isn't. And I still don't care what it has to say about illegal immigration.
This show is sponsored by Harry's.com, makers of fine razors and other shaving supplies. And the fact is, when Harry's got started, there was a lot about the shaving industry that could use improvement. Blades and handles were outlandishly overpriced, their quality left something to be desired, and they were a hassle to buy when you'd often find them locked in cabinets in stores. Well, seeing all of this room for improvement, Harry's went out to make just those improvements and are now disrupting the industry. Harry's blades are about half the price of the old guard while being the best blades I've ever used and they are delivered right to your door. To try them out, you can get a starter kit for just 15 bucks that includes a handle, blades, and shaving cream or gel, but you can take another $5 off of that when you use the coupon code BEST at checkout. So go to harrys.com and get a starter kit of your own and start shaving better while saving money. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter the coupon code BEST at checkout for $5 off your starter set and start shaving smarter today. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, hold Border Patrol responsible. Republicans would have you believe that they've seen the light on immigration reform. Just pay no attention to the way they refuse to pass anything comprehensive. They see the benefit of incremental, piecemeal legislation and are hoping to appear less xenophobic ahead of the presidential primary season. Well, whether we like it or not, primary season is in full swing, and with the House gone for August recess and the Senate right behind them on Friday, this supposed party-line shift seems to have been mostly hype. The only members of the GOP weighing in on immigration with any enthusiasm are the primary contenders themselves. Jeb Bush even seems to be taken seriously despite his throwback go-to line, quote, finding a practical solution to the status of the people who are here illegally today is a non-starter if our borders are not secure against future illegal immigration, unquote. Despite ongoing abuses in border towns, U.S. Customs and Border Protection has virtual free reign under the Department of Homeland Security. There is little recourse for those who live with the checkpoints and harassment happening well into U.S. territory. It isn't just Jeb's quote-unquote illegals being targeted. Legal residents must pass through checkpoints even if they aren't living on one side of the border and working or visiting family on the other. The ACLU has been pushing a campaign of accountability since the president's much-lauded executive order to stop deportations for over 4 million immigrants this past winter. That order also ramped up the militarization of border towns and checkpoints. Visit the action tab at aclu.org or use the link in the segment and show notes to go directly to the petition titled, Our Border Communities Are Not Constitution-Free Zones. The petition demands a clear, effective method for reporting human rights violations, a power that rests with the President and the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. This method must be transparent, available to non-English speakers, and followed by a strong investigation process. While we're fighting for comprehensive immigration reform that requires action from Congress, we must continue to push the President and his administration to stop all abuses within the power of the executive branch. Bringing the Constitution back to the border and to those who reside there is an important step. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If acknowledging the human rights of all those residing within our borders matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about holding Border Patrol accountable via social media so that others in your network can get involved. Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. 
Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. What if I told you I knew how to add trillions of dollars to the global economy and improve the lives of billions of people with a single policy change? Sound too good to be true? Well, I should warn you, it's a policy that people in most rich countries oppose. What is it? Open immigration. The consensus among economists is that free trade between countries creates huge gains in prosperity. The same thing happens when you have free trade in labor. In other words, more open immigration. We don't have to remove all of the barriers to immigration to start to see these gains. If only 5% of the population in poorer countries immigrated to richer countries, global incomes would rise by four to nine trillion dollars. These gains are possible because when you allow workers to move to countries with more economic opportunities, they are able to produce more wealth with the same skills by orders of magnitude. For instance, when an unskilled Haitian moves to the United States, their pay rises by more than 1,000%. Some worry that increased immigration would harm native-born workers. However, most studies show that on the whole, these harms are non-existent or minor, temporary, and clustered on only a small portion of the population. Free trade and labor brings economic gains to virtually everyone in the long run. There's plenty of room for debate about what a more open immigration policy should look like, but our goal should be clear, to allow more workers to freely move around the world to where they can be as productive and prosperous as possible. We have been called many names. Illegals, aliens, guest workers, border crossers, undesirables, exiles, criminals, non-citizens, terrorists, thieves, foreigners, invaders, undocumented. Our voices converge on these principles. We know that international connectivity is the reality that migrants have helped create. It is the place where we all reside. We understand that the quality of life of a person in a country is contingent on migrants' work. We identify as part of the engine of change. We are all tied to more than one country. The multilaterally shaped phenomenon of migration cannot be solved unilaterally, or else it generates a vulnerable reality for migrants. Implementing universal rights is essential. The right to be included belongs to everyone. We have the right to move, and the right to not be forced to move. We demand the same privileges as corporations and the international elite, as they have the freedom to travel and to establish themselves wherever they choose. We are all worthy of opportunity and the chance to progress. We all have the right to a better life. We believe that the only law deserving of our respect is an unprejudiced law, one that protects everyone, everywhere. No exclusions, no exceptions. 
we condemn the criminalization of migrant lives. We affirm that being a migrant does not mean belonging to a specific social class, nor carrying a particular legal status. To be a migrant means to be an explorer. It means movement. This is our shared condition. Solidarity is our wealth. We acknowledge that individual people with inalienable rights are the true barometer of civilization. We identify with the victories of the abolition of slavery, the civil rights movement, the advancement of women's rights, and the rising achievements of the LGBTQ community. It is our urgent responsibility and our historical duty to make the rights of migrants the next triumph in the quest for human dignity. It is inevitable that the poor treatment of migrants today will be our dishonour tomorrow. We assert the value of the human experience and the intellectual capacity that migrants bring with them, as greatly as any labour they provide. We call for the respect of the cultural, social, technical and political knowledge that migrants command. We are convinced that the functionality of international borders should be reimagined in the service of humanity. We understand the need to revive the concept of the commons, of the earth as a space that everyone has the right to access and enjoy. We witness how fear creates boundaries, how boundaries create hate, and how hate only serves the oppressors. We understand that migrants and non-migrants are interconnected. When the rights of migrants are denied, the rights of citizens are at risk. Dignity has no nationality. Hi, this is Katie from Best of Left Social Media and Activism. I wanted to call and respond both to Jay's call for things that are different about us that make us happy and also respond to Chris from Seattle's voicemail, which was posted on the most recent feminism episode uh, where he has found happiness through polyamory. Uh, yes. Uh, this is me also. Uh, I didn't actually know I was looking for it because our mononormativity, heteronormativity, purity culture mix really doesn't even allow for the space for those of us who, who would who respond well in multiple um, multiple romantic relationships to even know that that's a thing that exists that we should be looking for. So it was kind of a um, it was kind of a challenge to find. I was certainly over 30 when I realized that the mononormativity um, sort of conveyor belt of life was part of why relationships hadn't worked for me in the past. Um, I have found similar to um, similar to Chris that poly definitely exposes a lot of your own issues and part of that is just because you have so much more communication emphasis uh, in polyamorous relationships part of that is because you have uh, more time commitments and part of it is just because that community really really emphasizes consent and really emphasizes that there's no that there's no standard there's no assumption um, there's no automatic assume for what the person sitting across the table or across the bar from you wants. So you actually have to talk about things like where you want to live and what you want your house to look like and whether or not you want children or ever want to get married. So as a, someone who does communications, I just really, really have loved that as well. And I actually have a follow-up question for Chris, and I hope he will call back. Um, he also identifies as queer, and I apologize if I'm getting your pronoun incorrect, Chris. Um, 
uh, you identify as queer and also so that you identify as poly. And this is something that I've discussed a lot with um, friends in the queer community, particularly those who are uh, bi. It turns out I have a lot of bi female friends. Um, we have a lot of the same assumptions, not the same erasure issues, but the same assumptions made of us um, as, as a poly woman does. And so we've, I've talked a lot about whether or not I can call or it is appropriate for me to call poly an identification. Um, I think of it more as a relationship style just because I don't want to be co-opty about it, but I would love to hear what a person who identifies both as poly and queer has to say about that. So thank you so much for sharing and hopefully I'll call back. Hey Jay, my name's Matt, I'm from Flagstaff. And I listened to your program about the Netroots Nation meeting. And I just had to, I had to convey something that I, I think perhaps might have gotten lost in the shuffle, but that I think is really important about the story about what happened there with the, the Black Lives Matter protesters and what a difficult and sensitive and powerful and prevalent issue that is for us all to try to grapple with. And, uh, Really, it's about Bernie Sanders and just simply to emphasize that if you go and you look at what he has been talking about for a long time, that I think he's gotten a bit of a short stick from, from the way you presented the show. Uh, you know, you can read from his speech the day before when he was in Iowa, where he says, And like everybody in this room, I want to see an America where young black men walk down the street. They will not be harassed by police officers. They will not be killed. They will not be shot. That was the day before the protest. And that's not to say that as challenging as the issue is, how hard it is for white Americans to really deeply understand that plight, that doesn't mean there aren't people who do sincerely try in the best way that they can. And I think that Sanders deserves credit for having known and felt strongly about that issue before that protest happened. And I think that was lost in the shuffle. Anyway, great show. I listen to it all the time. I really appreciate it. Take care. Hi, Jay. It's Sunny from St. Paul. I was listening to uh, episode 942 and um, really uh, had a lot of, I don't know, my heart is just breaking when I listened to the, well, the anguish and then the anger in the black voices that I heard on the episode and have heard in past episodes and totally, uh, totally, um, just, I, I just, so I'm a 61 year old white woman, grew up in a very progressive home in the sixties, a lot of talk of civil rights issues and support for black power and all that. But even though it was a very progressive environment, I was listening to a lot of white people. I didn't hear, I didn't have exposure to um, black people, so I just heard a lot of white voices voicing all of this progressive liberal stuff, you know. And it's really great to hear the black voices, and I just feel like we need to hear a lot more black voices. And at the same time I want to, I don't know, maybe respond to that anguish, because what I realize is, you know, there's so much I don't know that I don't know, and sometimes when you when you come when you realize that there's so much you don't know that you don't know an initial tendency i'm sure i have it myself i try to be vigilant but i'm not always successful 
about responding with um, maybe defensiveness, you know, and certainly fear of being exposed for not knowing so much and being so ignorant. Trading on my white privilege, you know, even though I'm aware I have white privilege, but I don't even know all the ways it seeps into my life and all that. So more more black voices is, is really, really, really necessary. And um, I just want to let the black voices out there know that this white woman um, is, you know, just, I understand that I don't know so much and I want to know more, and so just keep talking. So thanks, Jay, for everything you do, and uh, keep being awesome. Hey, Jay, Snell. I wanted to join in on the happiness conversation. I know it's not a lot of people find it to be an important subject or even relevant in our day-to-day life cycles of trying to survive. Happiness is not a really high priority for most people I know, so talking about it breaks the monotony of the madness. Writing music has always been a great way for me to express myself, in turn making me happy and also affecting others. Even though I haven't wrote or performed in a long time, your podcast has actually inspired me to write again. I almost forgot how happy it made me feel. I figured I'd let you hear it since I have nothing else to do with it once I wrote it. So, here it goes. It's called Political Solutions. Today I contemplate political solutions, it's hard to concentrate with all this noise pollution, the media spins webs with the intent to amass confusion and it works perfectly like a magician's fast illusion, you couldn't see the misdirection Molly Cyrus's ass is moving so most people eat defeat and drink down a glass of losing I laugh the fools and don't even see the political intentions, thank god I got a brain still the greatest search engine with the processing power to avert and ease tension cause one can get shaky with all the guests mentioned and plus there's no way we can stall the intervention long enough for the crazy to fall out of comprehension coupled with the eagerness for voluntary suspension how are we going to get changed we can't even pay attention well thanks to the influence of the corporate giants in tandem with religious groups and the ignorance of science we too are to blame with our own compliance are we going to understand and overstand it's time to triumph thanks jay thanks for the motivation and all that you do man one love Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. In either case, keep it as short as you can. You'll have a better chance of having it played. Now today, I want to respond to Neil. We just heard from him. He was the last voicemail talking about how he's rediscovered his interest in music and found happiness through that, which I love. I love everything about that message. And and I want to focus on you know, what he said towards the beginning about how it's difficult to focus on happiness when you're struggling to survive. And to be clear, I'm not bullshitting anyone. I've never had to struggle to survive. So I cannot know what he means from experience. But I can understand, at least on an intellectual level, what Neil's talking about. And since I would never discount someone's lived experience, you know, when he says that he and the people he knows have trouble focusing on happiness because they're too focused on surviving, I believe him. You know, that makes perfect sense to me. But with that said, I'm still going to go ahead and make the case for why anyone in any position should focus on happiness anyways, no matter how difficult it seems like that would be. First and most obvious, happiness is its own reward. I mean, seriously, that should be 
obvious. It, happiness is not a means to another end. It is an end in and of itself. So if you can figure out how to be happy regardless of your circumstances, well, then you're killing it. <laughs> you're doing awesome. And secondly, and most specific to anyone struggling economically, happier people tend to be able to make more money. If you're in poverty, then money will definitely make you happier just by itself. That is a fact. But what is less known is that the inverse is also true, that regardless of your current economic standing, being happy actually increases your earning power. So if you're in poverty, happiness can actually be part of the path out of your hardship, not just a place you hope to get to one day when you're more financially secure. And the trick behind this is that happy people tend to be more productive. They tend to do a better job at work and, as a result, make more money. You know, this is all averages, of course. So for someone struggling to get by, it can actually be one of the most powerful positive feedback loops available. If you can figure out how to be happy before you've started making more money, that may actually help you earn more money. And then having more money will make you happier, and the cycle continues. Now, the real question is, how can a person just decide to be happy when they're in such a difficult situation? Well, for the past few weeks, I've been singing the praises of the philosophy that I found called Stoicism, and the Stoics definitely have some thoughts about the impoverished. So let's review real quick. I first introduced you to the Stoic idea of negative visualization by having you imagine what it would be like to be deaf, thereby presumably giving you a new appreciation for the miracle of actually being able to hear. So basically the idea of negative visualization is that if you think briefly about how things could be worse, you will end up with a more positive perspective on how things actually are, thereby making you happier with your life regardless of what your life looks like. So now I'm going to read a sort of long passage to you out of the book I read about Stoicism. It's called A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. Uh, definitely go pick it up at your local library when you get a chance. So here's what the Stoics had to say about poverty. Stoicism is by no means a rich person's philosophy. Those who enjoy a comfortable and affluent life can benefit from the practice of Stoicism, but so can those who are impoverished. In particular, although their poverty will prevent them from doing many things, it will not preclude them from practicing negative visualization. Consider the person who has been reduced to possession of only a loincloth. His circumstances could be worse. He could lose the loincloth. He would do well, say the Stoics, to reflect on this possibility. Suppose, then, that he loses his loincloth. As long as he retains his health, his circumstances could again be worse, a point worth considering. And if his health deteriorates, he can be thankful that he is still alive. It is hard to imagine a person who could not somehow be worse off. It is therefore hard to imagine a person who could not benefit from the practice of negative visualization. The claim is not that practicing it will make life as enjoyable for those who have nothing as it is for those who have much. The claim is merely that the practice of negative visualization, and more generally the adoption of Stoicism, can take some of the sting out of having nothing, and thereby make those who have nothing less miserable than they would otherwise be.
Along these lines, consider the plight of James Stockdale. If the name rings a bell, it's probably because he was Ross Perot's running mate in the 1992 campaign for President of the United States. A Navy pilot, Stockdale was shot down over Vietnam in 1965 and held as a prisoner of war until 1973, eight years. During that time, he experienced poor health, primitive living conditions, and the brutality of his jailers. And yet, he not only survived, but emerged an unbroken man. How did he manage it? In large part, he says, by practicing stoicism. One other thing to realize, although they offered downtrodden people advice on how to make their existence more tolerable, the Stoics are by no means in favor of keeping these people in their state of subjugation. The Stoics would work to improve their external circumstances, but at the same time, the Stoics would suggest things they could do to alleviate their misery until those circumstances are improved. And that is what it's really all about. Work to improve your external circumstances as well as your mental state. Improving one will help improve the other and vice versa. And with negative visualization in your philosophical tool belt, you have a way to improve your state of mind without spending a dime. So best of luck to Neil, keep it up with the music, sir, as well as his friends and anyone else who finds themselves in a similar situation. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that poverty is an easy thing to climb out of. It's not. But what I do know is that misery is much easier to climb out of than many people believe. And if you can do that, it may make the road out of poverty that much easier. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews and iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories and wonder